Welcome to the Impact 360 Institute podcast, where our goal is to explore biblical worldview and servant leadership to equip you for everyday influence. Here's your host, author and director of cultural engagement, Jonathan Morrow. Well, welcome to the Impact 360 Institute podcast. I'm really excited about today's guest. And the question is, why do we need to defend our faith? And what does that look like, especially in the kind of culture that we live in? And I'm really excited about our guest today, which is Dr. Joshua Chatro, and he is the director of New City Fellows in Raleigh, North Carolina, and he writes and lectures in the areas of apologetics and public theology. He's the author of several books around these topics, and most recently, the book that we're going to talk about called Apologetics at the Cross, an Introduction for Christian Witness. So, Josh, thanks so much for joining the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great. Well, maybe just talk a little bit about kind of how did you come to care about apologetics? And maybe then we'll define that in a a minute. You know, we're not apologizing for our faith or anything like that. But how is it that you kind of, in your story, how did did you come to care about apologetics? Yeah, I I think for me, I'm probably an unlikely apologist in the sense that I, I didn't go into seminary or even my PhD studies thinking I'm going to be an apologist or write in apologetics. But it was it was really a um, a couple of things. One is I was just, you know dealing with questions that I had. So I, I grew up in the church and growing up through high school, I really didn't have anyone kind of raising questions. And so I wasn't necessarily thinking about how to answer those questions. And then I got into college and all of a sudden, Lots of questions <laughs> began to pop in my mind as I talked to others and as I began to really start reading for myself in different areas for the first time. So it was a personal thing just to survive as a Christian for me. And then when I when I jumped into pastoral ministry during PhD work, it was here's our pastor who's also getting a PhD in theology, and so we have lots of questions. And so it was really kind of a practical kind of way for me to do ministry, to love people in my congregation, to love people who were who were asking questions, who weren't believers, who were interested, and to give a response. So it was really a ministry thing for me, both in my own life, trying to work through things and then to try to help other people. That's awesome. And so, you know, because it's always interesting to see how different people kind of come to care about different topics. And uh, usually somewhere along the way, something happens where questions are asked or not asked and or a certain mentor or friend or a situation or whatever. And so it's always interesting to see kind of what drives that. Uh, but tell us a little bit about what you're getting to do now. I know this is a, a new role for you as the director of New City yeah. Fellows. So share us a little bit about what you're doing with New City Fellows. Yeah. So uh, you know, one of the things, one of my interests is cultural engagement, which is, I think, related to apologetics. And for the last four years, I've been teaching at Liberty University in an academic context and really kind of trying to help students connect the gospel to all areas of life. So not to, a lot of my students had a rather dualistic framework. And by that, I meant it's kind of like Christianity is here and it's for, you know, religious matters, for spiritual things. You know, I learned how to do my devotions. I learned how to connect to God. And then there's this way the world works. And it's kind of a disconnected faith. And so a lot of what I was trying to do with college students is try to help them see how, as one theologian put it, the gospel is a public proclamation. And it's it's a it affects all of life. But I was really doing it with college students and kind of before they went out to the workforce and at a kind of a theoretical level at an academic institution, New City Fellows is one of the few programs across the nation that's actually working with people who are 
already in the workforce who are leaders in a city and saying, how do we work this out in, in a very practical way? So we take a class of around 30 young professionals, leaders in the community of Raleigh, and we work with them to kind of work, work out the gospel in their areas of work and in, in their life. That's awesome. And so one of the things, obviously, very similar hearts here is, you know, that's what we get to do with our Impact 360 fellows, which is our high school graduates, age 18 Mm -hmm. to 20, is kind of helping them kind of see kind of all of life from God's perspective. How do you do that integration? And we have nine months to spend with them here because it's so important because like you're saying, I think just growing up, unfortunately, sometimes in the church or in our culture, people kind of have that idea of there's these two separate worlds we live in. There's my religious and spiritual world, and then there's everything else. And what a gift when we can bring those worlds together for people. So thanks for the, for the awesome work you're doing there in Raleigh with New City Fellows. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so let's talk more about your book. So why do you think that, you know, as you kind of maybe engage with different leaders or youth pastors, why do you think apologetics is not as valued in maybe the local church context as it probably should be, especially given our kind of cultural context of kind of being this post-Christian kind of worlds. What do you think is kind of going on there? Why is there a disconnect in your mind? Yeah, I think I think there's plenty of blame to go go around. <laughs> so I think I like to start with myself as an academic or as an apologist and say and kind of look in the mirror before I blame the church because I think it's easy if you're into apologetics to kind of say, well, the church just doesn't get it. You know, the lay people don't get it. The people in the pews don't get it. They're anti-intellectual and kind of look down on them. But instead, I I like to start here with myself and say, how have we as a community of of leaders and apologists maybe not presented this well, (laughs) or maybe had wrong notions about what this is? And I think, so for instance, I think that one of the big ways that people get introduced to, to apologetics is the debate stage, is a YouTube video and it's posted on social media with like, watch so-and-so demolish an atheist. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so then they tune into that and either they, they love that and they're like, yes, you know, I love WWF wrestling. I love apologetic debates and this is my thing. So it's kind of like, you know, intellectual wrestling and that's my thing and that's what I love to do. And then they go actually try that. And oftentimes like on the ground level, conversations just don't work like that. And so they end up being, for a lot of people, turned off by that eventually. Or immediately, they say, as one of my students at Liberty once told me, she said, I didn't really want to take your class because I viewed apologetics as what what young high school boys like to do as a kind of like, again, like a immature kind of wrestling in, in the way they, they talk about apologetics and theology. And so she didn't want anything to do with it because she saw a certain level of immaturity with it. And, and so I kind of had to look at myself and what, what we were doing as a community of apologists to say, hey, maybe the way we're actually advertising what we're doing, or maybe, in fact, what we're doing has some flaws in it. And now I don't think that's a whole story, but I do think maybe there, there's a problem there, both in, in the way we were advertising this and in what we were doing. And so part of what I kind of started doing is saying, hey, apologetics is about loving your neighbor. Apologetics is about having conversations with people that you deeply care about. And and so part of doing that is taking a more a dialogical or conversational approach to this. Now, I do think there's an anti-intellectualism within the church, and I do think that that's part of why people are going to kind of kick back 
but I kind of like to start with maybe what we can do. If you're listening to this podcast, you might be into apologetics and maybe we need to start kind of with our own own self and how we present this. Yeah, for sure. No, I, I love how you frame that, you know, kind of that idea of loving your neighbor. And, and that means telling the truth. It means serving them well. It's not this classic us versus them WWF match like you're talking about, you know, and that's a really important thing to grasp because we don't want to be offensive to people. We want to make the case. We want to have those conversations. There's good reasons for why we believe what we believe. And I think your book does a great job of kind of walking through that. But I was curious about the title that you chose to use and this concept you put throughout. What is apologetics at the cross? Like why that particular way of envisioning apologetics? Yeah, well, we're kind of um, we're kind of borrowing from Luther here. Martin Luther, the reformers, you know, he talked about the difference between 500 years ago. He's he's talking about the difference between a theologian of the cross versus a theologian of glory. And so, in our book, in the middle part, we kind of introduce readers to the idea of a, of an apologist at the cross versus an apologist of glory. An apologist of glory is triumphalistic. Is thinking they can do this kind of on their own. It's about their glory. It's about winning now. Where whereas apologetics at the cross recognizes, yeah, there is there is glory at the end of this, but it actually comes through the cross. And we see this in John's gospel. The glory is actually seen on this what seems weakness, or as as First Corinthians once says, seems like foolishness to the world. And there's a weakness here. And, and I think what what we're trying to get at, there's a certain humility even as we use arguments and try to persuade, there's a certain humility and approach that should be characteristic of a Christian apologetic. Now, that's one side. That, that's focusing on kind of a tone or a posture for the apologist. Also in the book, one of the things we're trying to do is say, we're using the cross as a shorthand for the gospel. And we're saying, what if we start apologetics in light of the gospel and kind of go from there? So so what are some of the implications for the gospel for apologetics? So this has been done in theology in different in different books and in different kind of reflections on how to kind of build a theological structure, but it's, it's, it hasn't really been done in apologetics. So we're trying to start kind of reflecting on the discipline in light of the gospel itself. Yeah, no, that's very helpful because, I mean— Again, sometimes there's a mis- misconception that, you know, this is only a rational exercise, when in reality, everything we do involves the whole person, intellect, emotion, will, reason, relationship, emotion, all of those kinds of things. And it's really important to have humility. You know, h- how in your own life have you kind of found that balance of, obviously, you think Christianity is true, and you think there's good reasons for it, and mm-hmm. I would say you probably say you actually know that it's true. So how do, what does that look like to have humility then in those interactions that you have with other people without, in a way, kind of diminishing the truth that we can know those things, but also in that posture? What, what does that look like for you? Yeah. Well, I think part of this is that we're holistic beings. And so the reasons for rejecting the faith are, are also holistic in a sense. And, and, and what I mean by that is people have different reasons, and some of them are their emotional reasons— they're rational reasons. Almost always those are intertwined because we're holistic beings. And so approaching someone to say, okay, here are five kind of knockdown arguments for Christianity, and let me just kind of unload on them. I haven't really got to understand that person. What, what are they struggling with, and why are they struggling with it? 
so instead of starting off with, okay, I have my script of here are the five best reasons I found. Now I'm going to unload on them. I'm really actually treating this person as a holistic being who's complicated. And so that, that personal side, I think is important to embody this type of humility. I think the other part I'd want to add to this is that part of our apologetic needs to be the witness of our lives and the life of the church and the community we're a part of. And I think that's where the kind of cultural impact and apologetics kind of comes together rather than seeing apologetics really about just these kind of, you know, here's the conversation I'm going to have, but also seeing it part of that conversation is happening within a context of a lived community and how that community is living their life as the church and how you're living it as an apologist or as a Christian is going to speak volumes to the credibility of the faith. And so there's a beauty here that should go along with the arguments, not only in our arguments, we should care about form and beauty and, and how we're talking about that, because that's part of persuasion, but also in the very lives that we're living so that that itself is going to attract people and, and be part of the actual argument that we make. Yeah, and that, I think that's really important that, you know, this doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? This happens in the context of relationships and assumptions and culture and what people view as normal. And all of that needs to be brought to bear. That's why I think the multifaceted and the integrated approach of your book is, is really helpful in that regard. Um, you spend some different time walking through different things. Obviously, we're not going to be able to capture all that you've covered in the book. But what do you think we could learn today from some of the early church fathers or the church leaders yeah. and some of the apologists, quote unquote, of the early church when they found themselves trying to interact with kind of the world that they lived in and the assumptions and all that? What do you, what do you think we can learn from them? Yeah, I mean, uh, there's some connections that lots of people have picked up between the situation we're going on and, and what some people call a post-Christian society. You know, th that can mean different things without going into that. There's clearly some shifts that have happened even in the last 50 years in America where the Bible is not respected in the same ways that it once was. And so we live in a more pluralistic age. And I think there's some connections with that. Obviously, as Christianity is coming into the Greco-Roman world in the first century to a pluralistic world, and people didn't respect these Christians. And so I think one of the things is when we look at how what the early church did, it was it was the quality of their of their life. They lived and died better than anyone else. And so as as the pagans were fleeing in the early church because of a, a massive plague that hit, Christians were staying. They believed in the resurrection. And that gave them hope to stay and motivation to care, even at the risk of their own lives, for even not only their sick, but the sick of the, the, the pagan sick as well. And so it was, it was this context driven by theology, driven by sound theology and the resurrection that gave them hope that therefore they, they lived different types of lives. So it's, it's a life lived based on what they believed. And I think that's important because even though we see this connection in the early church, there's also the, in, in some ways it's harder because in the early church, there wasn't a track record. In other words, they were saying all these nasty things about Christians in the early church, but Christianity was still new, and there wasn't really a track record. Now they're saying, you know, Christianity has been around for 2,000 years, and there's a history to point to where Christians haven't always, of course, done the right thing. We've done some, uh, as a, you know, people claiming the name of Christ have done some horrific things and have been coercive. And so there's actually a checkered history that there is some kind of actually historical things they point to that we've been coercive and 
and that they have a right to point out, whereas in the early church, they didn't have that checkered past yet. So in some ways, you might even say there's new challenges, even while there's a connection with the past. But I think that the call is the same, that it starts with the lives of the community that forms an embodied apologetic, how we live our life, how we care for the poor, how we care for the weak in our community. That's the context out of which I think arguments are much more compelling. No, that's 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 super helpful insight for sure. Um, it's in some ways we have to kind of undo <laughs> some misperceptions and and help heal some wounds before we can have some of those conversations and bring those things together for people, which is which is a really important task. What what would you say is probably the toughest one of the toughest questions for Christians to answer today? Like when you're asked questions, what's the most common one for you, or what's that the headline question? It's like probably you know. At our cultural moment, this is something that Christians ought to be able to answer, to give a defense for. Yeah, I mean, I think sexuality, that's a big cultural issue, and it's one that is impacting how people perceive Christianity. It's not perceived as good. So I think uh, the kind of ethos is, who cares Who cares about your arguments? It's not good. It's kind of like um, trying to convince someone that they should come fight and give their life for a country they don't care anything about or a, a country that they think they don't agree with their values and their norms. And then coming to them and saying, I have you know five good reasons why you should join up with us and be a part of us. It's like, why, why would I do that? Because I don't even think your, your country is good. Why would I come alongside and fight with you? And, and I think sometimes, so when people take the question of sexuality, they see Christianity as, as really rejecting freedom and fulfillment found in in sexuality and found in doing what you want with your sexuality. And so that's seen as an, as an evil. That seemed as like implausible that we would abide by certain sexual norms. And so I think answering that question, oftentimes that's at the forefront because people aren't even going to consider, you know, maybe some of the more traditional apologetic arguments unless they view this is something actually that's not bad, but good. I'd, I'd like to believe that this is true, but they're often not at that point. They don't even want to believe it's true because of the implications for, for what it would mean for something that's so close to their, their identity or their friend's identity, something they see as, as anti-human flourishing. Yeah, I think that's a really good insight. You know, in, in some ways, we've got to help figure out how to bridge that gap between is Christianity good and is Christianity true? And and, and do both of those, you know, because in some yeah. ways, if you diminish one and elevate the other and never talk about one and not talk about the other, you're just going to kind of perpetuate kind of this imbalance yeah. of what, you know, yeah, totally. you know, because Christianity is making a claim about reality. It's, that is true, <laughs> but we also have to say, hey, no, this is actually really good. And we ought to be able to hopefully point, you know, to our lives and our communities and, and our churches and say, hey, you know, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. And you can also think well and engage well, and it best answers the biggest questions of life and all those kinds of things. And I guess, yeah, what, and go ahead. If I can, if I can jump in on that, and I, so I completely agree with you. And so, so sometimes in that, in that discussion, I would, it's a matter of prudence or wisdom, how, you know, what you do, but sometimes I might would say when that comes up, so are you saying that because you don't like the Christian sexual ethic that Jesus didn't rise from the dead? And they'll say, well, no, for other reasons that people don't rise from the dead. Well, I think you can say, well, that's that's probably the crux of our of our disagreement, really, because if Jesus rose from the dead, then we should listen to him. 
There's all these other implications. And that means you should trust what he says about, you know, moral norms. But if he didn't, then, then yeah, why would you listen to what he says about anything? So I think that there's a way you can kind of go there to, to kind of, okay, let's have this conversation. But even as I have this conversation that's more traditional apologetics and kind of work around that question, but even as I give that as a kind of strategy, I also want to add that I don't think that they're ever going to be able to divorce the question of, is this good or beautiful and is it true? So it's not as if they can just all of a sudden turn off that question and then somehow just neutrally come to the question of, did Jesus rise from the dead? Because they know the implications. So sometimes it's it's a matter of, okay, which is going to go first and which one's going to go second? But I just don't want to give anyone the impression that because you got them to focus on the resurrection, that now they're on some kind of neutral ground where they can just kind of consider that the evidence without this kind of the implications of that kind of hovering over them. Yeah, for sure. Because at the end of that, of course, is if Jesus really rose from the dead, then he's authoritative. Like He can authoritatively answer these questions. And God, who created us, is authoritative. And ultimately, we are not the ultimate authority than someone outside of or above us is. And that's that's part of that dynamic as well. What, what's, um, maybe as kind of we wrap this up a little bit, what's, what's one of the things that you're encouraged by and some of the things that you're seeing today around whether the people you get to work with or the conversations you get to have, what's something you're encouraged by in this area of apologetics and some of those kind of things today? Yeah, I, I would say that I'm encouraged that it, it seems to be we're moving beyond a, what I would call like a one-dimensional approach to apologetics. There's, there's always been – one of the things we try to do in the book in the early chapters is show that the church history is more multifaceted than it's often perceived in regards to apologetics. In other words, people have been doing different things. In, in the American tradition of apologetics, sometimes I think we focus on one particular type, and depending on – kind of our tribe or our camp or what kind of church or denomination we're in, they've typically focused on one type of apologetics. But I'm encouraged that more people are beginning to realize that this has to be a team sport, so to speak, and that the different traditions can contribute something really valuable and we can learn from each other. And not only the, the different apologetic traditions, but also different academic disciplines so that church history comes in and even world history comes into play and philosophy comes into play and biblical studies and theology and sociology and cultural analysis, all of that can actually come in to help us. But even as I describe that, as what I'm encouraged by, our, some of our listeners might be thinking, well, that's overwhelming to me. But I, I think we need to see ourselves as, you know, no one's going to be a master at all those disciplines. So you see yourselves, again, part of a community doing this together. And, and to me, that's encouraging when, when apologetics is done in a community and we're learning from one another in community about how to best make arguments for the faith and persuade people that the gospel is true and that it's good and beautiful. Absolutely. And so there's that piece of kind of helping people awareness to the many people who are doing great work on lots of different topics, issues, areas, and many people who are loving their communities well and creating beautiful things and all of that stuff's coming together, cheering for one another and not just saying, hey, this is the most important part of the kingdom work, or this is the most important part of the kingdom work, but rather all this collective effort together, making that case with our lives, with reasons, everything else is part of what we're supposed to be doing. And that's one of the fun things we get to do here at Impact 360 with students during the summer for our high school experiences, whether that's Propel or Immersion 
or in our nine month with our fellows, you know, that's something that we want to come alongside me and ally for you as a listener, as a parent, um, as a youth leader for helping your students give them a place to introduce them to this rich kind of whole life view of living the Christian life where you can know why you believe what you believe and you can love others well and do that. So if you want to find out more about that, check out impact360.org and registrations open for the summer experiences as well as applications for fellows. But Josh, it's been awesome having you as a part of the podcast today. Your book, Apologetics at the Cross, will have links in the show notes and loved hearing about what you're doing there with New City Fellows. What's a website for people can learn more about the work that you're doing there? Yeah, it's just newcityfellows.org. Awesome. And so they can all have a link to that in the show notes. But Josh, thank you for your work. Thanks for taking the time and effort to write this book. I mean, this is a this is an amazing resource that I hope people will check out and I know many will benefit from. So thank you for serving uh, the church in this way by writing this book for us and being on the podcast today. Yeah, you bet. Thanks, Jonathan. For more information about our on-campus worldview and leadership experiences for students and our accessible online courses like Explore Truth and Explore the Resurrection, visit impact360.org. Impact 360 Institute. Know. Be. Live. Live.